2: The Sources podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change, and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process, SSE, as Scotland's clean energy champion, can't wait to get started as soon as the project gets the green light from government. Learn more at bericbank.com. The podcast starts now. This is Hollywood Sources Live
3: with Callum Macdonald, Jeff Aberdeen, and Andy McKeever.
2: Hello, good evening. Welcome to Hollywood Sources Live. We are very excited to be in Aberdeen. <laughs> We have got an energy special for you this evening, and indeed, whenever t- whatever time you're listening to this podcast, welcome along. Uh, can you believe that for our second live episode, our first one was Hamza Youssef last August, and here we are in association with the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce, ready to dive deep into energy conversation, which is one that comes up on the podcast a lot. Tonight we're dedicating 90 minutes to just exploring all of these issues in such a crucial, crucial part of Scotland's economy, a crucial part of the economy in this part of the world. Tens of thousands of jobs, billions upon billions of pounds up for discussion this evening. Can we change the narrative? Does the narrative need changing, perhaps? Is this about de-weaponising the conversation around energy? Is that what you want? Is that what would work? Of course, everything's a bit political, but what if there's something of a cross-party consensus that might emerge, for example, this evening? Um, it's really very exciting to be here. It's exciting that we might get clarity on a path forwarding. That's something that will come up this evening as well. In the room with us here in Aberdeen, 300 people who know exactly what they're talking about about and who will be leading the conversation. Good evening, 300 people! Mm. <laughs> there they are. They've been winding and dimed, which is lovely. Uh, we've been up and running for a, what, about a year now on the podcast almost, um, which is really lovely. I'm actually pleased that here in the room you know, as a sort of plucky Um, startup that we are we're really pleased that we're actually supporting some plucky upstarts the likes of you know BP, uh, Centrica, (laughs) Shell all in the representatives in the room this evening finally giving them a platform and a voice (laughs) and lots of others as well there's hundreds of people here we're going to hear lots of your questions uh, throughout the evening so yeah we've been here for about a year we started just as Nicola Sturgeon resigned as SNP leader and First Minister Uh, we were there to wave off the camper van Um, we were there to watch a cloud of smoke of whatsapps being incinerated it would seem um Jeff Aberdeen and Andy McKeever of course are here to keep us going guys it's so good to be having a conversation about energy in Aberdeen I think that is actually a great place to start Jeff the fact that we are here in such a crucial part of the world for such a crucial conversation
4: absolutely this this is the economic and energy driver of the entire United Kingdom and I'm I said earlier off-broadcast that I was so proud to be here, and I truly mean it, because we could have this debate, we were encouraged to have this debate, weren't we not, in Mm -hmm. Glasgow, we were encouraged to have this debate in Edinburgh, and I insisted, and we insisted, on having it in Aberdeen, because this is where the expertise is, and so I do really mean this when I say please engage the conversation today. This is your opportunity to influence the three politicians you're about to see, and hopefully, in an election year, influence the legislation that will come thereafter. So, take that opportunity. Hmm. Andy, your thoughts? Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that. This is um, it's a really
3: good setting to have three people here: uh, a minister, two shadows, people who can genuinely have influence over the future direction of energy policy. Um, energy is going to be the economic backbone of the country for us, for our children, for our grandchildren Um, it's a policy which I am not convinced we're getting entirely right Uh, I'm not entirely impressed with politicians of any party when it comes to this, to be honest with you. Uh, And I think what we need is to, you know, politics is politics, and it's always going to be difficult to get consensus, but on an issue like this, in other countries there is broad consensus about the ground rules and about the basics of what we do, and it gives the industry certainty and it gives investors certainty Uh, and unfortunately lots of what comes out of politicians mouths of all colors in both governments do the opposite at the moment. I don't think they give uh, enough certainty and I'd like to hear uh, more of that tonight and the great thing about tonight is it's all
2: recorded. So whatever they say can be taken down and held (laughs) against them. Hmm. Well, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Some of you may be brand new to the Hollywood Sources podcast. Welcome, if that is you. Uh, This podcast, as I say, is about a year old. Tens of thousands of people listen to it every single month. Uh, More than 80% of Scottish parliamentarians, i.e. MSPs and MPs representing Scottish constituencies, are listening right now. Hello, parliamentarians. Uh, we have asked them, and they seem to love it. And I think one thing, if I may, because Jeff and Andy are the stars of the show, as you'll know if you're a listener, one thing about this is they are pragmatic. Yes, they have party political backgrounds, but actually what you will hear, I think tonight particularly, but what you hear throughout the podcast anyway, is how much they are interested in, what is in the best interest of Scotland. And so I think that listen out for the pragmatism this evening Uh, of course there's politics that's what makes it all fun but listen out for for the direction of travel that might be on offer this evening Uh, right we want to start by looking at some exclusive polling released today from the true north advisory firm jeff who's in charge of that uh,
4: if my colleague, Fergus, much would say him, but I'm going to say me for the purpose of this podcast. Right. Good. Uh, well, thanks for doing the polling,
2: Jeff, basically, is the bottom line, because it's focused on energy. It's given us some really interesting data to get to grips with um, and some really interesting sort of takeaways to, to have a little think about. Um, I suppose one of the things... Uh, to note from this, first of all, 75% of people across Scotland back the domestic production of oil and gas. 65% think that energy companies operating in the North Sea have a positive impact on the UK economy. I think that's an important bit of context. Then we turn to some of the specifics here. Uh, To what extent do you support or oppose the deployment of offshore wind farms? Well, 65% Uh, Support, i.e., strongly or indeed somewhat support. Let's start with that, Andy. What do we make of, of that as an indication of where the public is at and how that matches up with policy?
3: Let me firstly say that I can see from the TV screen over there that I'm placed right in the middle of the majority, which is not normal political territory for me, it has <laughs> so to be said. This are you uncomfortable? Is very, very new. Do you need help? Uh, this is very, very new. I'm not used to an audience this big with my political party background, it has to be said. <laughs> um, it's true.
2: You can laugh, but it's true. I
3: think what this shows, uh, and what a few of the questions which you are about to reveal show as well, is that... Um, Politicians can sometimes tie themselves in knots trying to work out what will make them popular and trying to predict what people think. I think people on an issue like this are well ahead of politicians in most Mm. cases, to be honest with you. Um, I remember uh, last year I was in Shetland speaking to school children from Anderson High, and more than anybody I've spoken to at Holyrood, they instantly understood transition. They understood transition immediately. There's no problem, there's no paradox, as far as they're concerned, with supporting uh, hydrocarbons and supporting renewables at the same time. It just felt normal to them. And I think what this shows is it feels normal
4: to most people as well. Those figures... uh that we've released in this poll. And I should say at the outset, um, somebody came up to me earlier on at dinner and said, what is this True North (laughs) poll? Is that you going around people that you like to (laughs) give them the answers you want? Just for clarification, this is uh, carried out by Servation, which is part of the British Polling Council, which is absolutely credible and completely verified. But we've done a number of these polls now at our organisation. And it's not just this one in isolation. It is every single time we poll this question an overwhelming majority come out in favour of support for further oil and gas uh, production, recognising that this is a crucial component uh, of the transition. So the real thing that we must explore tonight then is why aren't our politicians listening to that message? because it's so important that they do. Mm. And at the risk of repeating myself for all you, and I know 300 people listen to our podcast every week, I'm sure of it, (laughs) but I've made this point a few times, is that without that expertise, world leading expertise, if we don't protect what we have just now, we won't have what we need in the future to accelerate to new energies. That's why this is important. Mm. Um, good, right. A couple of other uh, polling questions just to
2: kind of set the scene really and build a bit of the context of what we're going to be talking about this evening. On domestic supply, uh, the UK should aim to meet its demand for oil and gas from domestic production. Look at this, 75%, three quarters of Scottish people think the UK should be meeting its ongoing demand for hydrocarbons from domestic sources. Um, again, and just a quick thought on this one.
3: Yeah, I think mean, again, it's not, you know, I think to... When you take yourself outside of politics, as Jeff and I have both done mm-hmm. for quite a significant period of time now, um, it, I was it's, quite successful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: been more significant for some <laughs> than others.
3: Uh, there are some things you can't argue against. This is the difficulty in their mind. I'm just going to gloss right Let's over just that carry one. Carry on. Um, a number like this doesn't surprise you? Yeah. Right, yeah. this is just obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, it's that combination of, uh, of, of jobs, of energy security, and of all the other things that uh, go into this issue, which um, are not contradictory because normal life and normal people don't operate in a black and white way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are, you know, out there in the real world, we're all nuanced. We can cope, we can cope with nuance, we can cope with transition, we can cope with seemingly paradoxical concepts and bring them together in a way that, at the moment, our politicians are finding difficult to do. So again, there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no surprise in any of these numbers. I don't think anybody here would be particularly surprised in any of these numbers. It's probably what you see and hear most days.
2: Yeah. Is anybody surprised, out of interest, just by shouting or heckling or raising your hand?
4: There's uh, not a single hand you up. landed me in it there. Yeah, I, know, yeah. <laughs> I, know. I was hoping to. But, but, but I, I, if I may just add to this, because we're in a general election year and this is going to be one of the key issues of public discourse as we approach polling day, absolutely no doubt about it. I think it's crying out for a political party to seize this agenda and speak an honest and pragmatic terms to the electorate and say, look, this is what we need mm. as part of a transition. We'll explore this later in questions with the politicians, but I just want some conviction um, from our politicians in this
2: regard. Yeah. Uh, The politicians are on the way in the next few minutes. A couple of other things just to draw out from the poll, because I I do think it's fascinating. This one got me. Um, The survey was gauging public opinion on targets to phase out gas boilers and new petrol and diesel cars. So let's take these in turn. 35% of the public think that the Scottish Government's plans to phase out gas boilers by 2045 is achievable. And then people are even more sceptical about the 2030 ambition to phase out petrol and diesel cars. 70% consider that target to be unachievable there's something in that isn 't there about the kind of belief of the public in the ambitions that are being set and why there is such a overwhelming skepticism about these things being actually possible
3: Yeah well you know the, uh, the dates sometimes can feel quite a long way in the future, but I think also um I think people have realised that on these two issues in particular, which are probably the two issues which they feel affects them the most in terms of their household mm-hmm. income, in terms of their day-to-day lives, uh, these are you know enormous issues for them, uh, and they see the prospect of pretty significant, personal investment being required in order to fix these issues, so it's not, it's not a surprise that there's a degree of scepticism uh, about it, but again, a lot of it comes back to policy, I've got an electric car, it's not easy Yeah. Uh, and the main reason it's not easy is because we have flunked charging infrastructure you know, it's just, uh, it's just not good enough to make your way around. And we tell ourselves that we're OK at charging infrastructure, but frankly, as soon as you go south of the border, you get much better time in an electric vehicle than you do when you're here. So there are lots of other barriers. It's not just about picking a date and saying this is when it's going to happen. There are other barriers. Again, the Scottish Government's policy on heat in homes um, has, in effect, rejected the use of blue hydrogen as a potential source for that. Um, and uh, on ideological grounds, um, And when you do that, you cut off a potentially, you know, a big component of how to make that happen Mm. more quickly. So you can't just nominate dates
4: because you think they
3: sound good if you're not backing it up with any action.
4: Go on to the next question. Okay. I'll link it back. (laughs) Okay. Nice. It's production in real time. Uh,
2: Let's go on then. Here's an idea. (laughs) I've decided we should go on to the next question. Um... As some of you will be aware, uh, in fact all of you I'm sure are aware, uh, two governments bear responsibility for Scotland's energy policy. Different aspects are reserved and devolved, but Scottish people recognise the importance of partnership working between Westminster and Holyrood to deliver energy security and unlock net zero. Look at this, 72%. It is important for governments to work together. Uh, Jeff, I wonder if you might want to link that back to what we were just talking about.
4: I would. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that. No, no, I, this to me is absolutely essential. So we know that grid connections capacity is reserved to Westminster. We know that the awarding of the licences for Scotland, that 28 gigawatts, gigawatts of power uh, off the coast of Scotland, is. The responsibility of the scottish government we need those two things to marry we need those things to work we need greater grid connections we need greater grid capacity by definition we need our governments to work together if ever there was an argument for any policy issue from trying to be taken out of the pure political um knock about this is it and that, and bringing it back to the, the question before There is no wonder there's scepticism about these plans, because if we don't have a framework for the wire about how we're going to achieve this Mm -hmm. through renewables and how can we convince our electorate that, and 24 million homes, incidentally, of that electorate across the UK, 86% who rely on gas boilers for heat and water, we need to present a much more coherent vision, a framework that says we recognise this is difficult. We're getting there, and the best way to do that is to say we will work together. Whatever the politics, we'll work together on that particular vision. And he's absolutely right. The Nordic country is a great example of where that already happens. So regardless of Scotland's constitutional future, we have that interrelationship with different governments. So
2: why can't we replicate that process? Really, really interesting. Uh, guys, thank you for that for now. Um, Lots to consider. If you've got questions in the room, uh, or you've got experiences you want to share, then in a little while we will, for the first time actually, in one of these live episodes, I say that's only our second one, um, but we're going to send Jeff and Andy, Ant and Deck, into the crowd, among you, to take your questions a little bit later on. So be thinking already perhaps about what you want to raise, what you want to hear discussed, what you want to ask about this evening, because... The real purpose for us being here is to hear from you and to let you speak directly to politicians. We have three of them uh, representing the SNP, Labour and the Conservatives this evening. I will introduce them properly in just a second because there are three of them and it will take us forever if I do it before they're on stage. So for now, can you just welcome our guests as they make their way up to join us? Yes, almost this one. Thank you very much. Sarah, I might just pop you on that one there if that's okay. Just to keep everybody right. Douglas, you're in the middle. You can take centre stage. Uh, Thanks, guys. Thank you very much for being here. Right, let me introduce our guest then Uh, Gillian Martin, SNP MSP for the Aberdeenshire East constituency and also Scottish Government Energy Minister. Douglas Lumson is Conservative MSP for the North East Scotland region and is the party spokesperson on energy, net zero, and indeed transport. And Sarah Boyack is with us as well, Labour MSP for the Lothian region and party spokesperson on energy, the just transition, and net zero. Welcome, all three of you. Thank you so much for being here. Are you okay? Yes. Yeah, Did you have a nice fine. dinner? Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, Rearing to you. go? Yeah. <laughs> good. I can sense was the it? nerves. <laughs> I can sense the nerves. Right, we wanted to start this evening with our politicians by giving each of them 90 seconds in turn to share a bit of their vision for energy in Scotland, to just sort of provoke some thoughts, to get things underway this evening. Um, now, basically because my imagination ran out earlier, let's hear these alphabetically by surname. It's just where I settled. Hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Sarah, it's you. <laughs> That'll be me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you can use up to 90 seconds. I will be strict, because we just want to hear a bit of your vision. Right, Sarah Boyak, over to you.
5: Okay, it's great to be here tonight and looking forward to the discussion. Um, and I think we're at a pivotal moment, um, because let me take my specs off so I can read my notes. Can you take that off? That's all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, You've got a mature oil and gas sector, which which is going to be with us for decades to come, but has also got some really important experience in some of the toughest environments, but also vital skills and knowledge. We've got a rapidly uh, expanding renewable sector, and we're seeing the transition already is happening, um, particularly up in the northeast. For example, using renewables uh, to decarbonise the production of oil and gas, uh, and we're lowering emissions. There, but we've got global conflicts which are making things tough, put our economy under pressure, record levels of fuel poverty. The impact of climate change is already with us, with horrendous storms impacting people's homes, our transport networks, uh, and businesses. Um, and we've got major, major challenges like investing in supply chains, uh, confidence. Uh, and certainty to those that want to invest. So I think it's key that we get a change. And in, in Labour, we are arguing that if we were going to be elected at some point this year, uh, we would set up GB Energy, headquarter it in Scotland, start investing in the sector, joining up the work that needs to be done, ramping up investment to 28000000000 billion mid-term of the next government, and try and bring in key technologies to build on what we've got, such as carbon capture and storage, greenhouse hydrogen and crucially bring people's household bills down. So it's about opportunities for the next generation. Um, I've seen Aberdeen's heat network, the biggest in Scotland. You've got hydrogen buses. Yeah. You've got real innovation and what's happening at Aberdeen Uni is inspiring in terms of their transition team.
2: So really looking forward to tonight and Good. hearing the questions. Thank you very much and thank you for persisting. Uh, right, Douglas, let's come to you next. Yeah, thank you, Callum. I was sort of thinking about this on the on the way
6: up um, back to Aberdeen this afternoon, and you know you said earlier we, we don 't agree on everything, but we actually do agree on on quite a quite a fair bit I feel you know we we do agree that we need to get away from burning hydrocarbons, and it's just maybe how we get there is that we have some disagreements. So the Scottish Conservatives, we support the development of renewable, uh, renewables, including wind, so we're part of that uh, 65% that was seen on the, the slide, and from that we accept that the grid infrastructure needs to be improved, but that needs to be done in a way that brings communities with us and not feel that they're having something done to them. We also believe that nuclear as a, as a place going forward, you know, when the wind, Wind is not blowing on those cold days, we need to have a, a reliable uh, base load and that 's what nuclear can bring us but most importantly for for me someone from from Aberdeen is that while we have a need for oil and gas, and we will have for a long time yet, we should la- rely as much as possible on domestic production part of that' seventy five percent we 've seen on that slide that 's better for our jobs. 93,000 of them, many of them in the the northeast of Scotland. Better for our economy, better for our energy uh, security. And, you know, there's always much talk about um, energy transition. But to transition, we still need the oil and gas uh, companies to invest in renewables. And you need the traditional oil and gas workers to be there to be able to transition into the the new jobs. And if the government turn their back too quickly on the oil and gas industry, then there won't be the expertise that we need to make that transition.
2: Douglas, thank you very much. And Gillian Martin?
7: So I think we're actually going to find more consensus than I think we all realised actually, because of one thing I think we can all agree on, um, certainly um, Douglas and I are both from from Aberdeen Aberdeenshire, is that we have got the capacity within the North East in particular in Scotland to harness the potential of a next energy revolution, absolutely. And when I go uh, about my, my job and I go and speak to other people from other nations they are very, very envious of what we've got here. This is for us to lose. So we have to have a very firm direction on where we're going. Now, are we going to need oil and gas for for a foreseeable future? Yes, we are. But we also know that the North Sea is a declining resource. The writing is on the wall. We either do something now significant and we are doing particularly with Scotland and the, the, the doubling of onshore renewables as well. Or we sit back and we wait for other countries to do it instead of us. We should be doing it. Our people are here. We've got the expertise. We've also got the oil and gas companies that have been working in the the Northeast for decades. We've got the expertise and they've also got the supply chain as well, who've been working for decades as well. We did it in the 1970s. I'm a child of the 1970s. That's when we came up to Aberdeen. My dad was an engineer in shipbuilding and he has spent the rest of his career in Aberdeen. So you don't have to tell me how important oil and gas is, but the writing is on the wall. It's declining resource. Even if we put climate and net zero aside, even if it were the case that that wasn't an issue, we have got a declining resource, but we have natural resources in wind and tidal and solar and uh, and wave.
2: Okay, thank you all very much. Uh, hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of where the politicians are starting out from this evening. Uh, we'll take a few minutes and do some analysis with Jeff and Andy, and then the bulk of the evening will be over to you. Um, if I just may pick up on a, a couple of things then that each of you have said, or indeed not said. Gillian, um, I was listening carefully for two words in your 90-second in your vision there. The words are presumption and against, and I didn't hear them.
7: No. So. Um, So that's the wording that's in the draft energy strategy as it stands right now. I think we've become very hung up on those two words at the expense of actually having a nuanced conversation about what that means. Every licence application is a presumption against. You have to have conditions met in order to get a licence. You go into your driving test, there's a presumption that you will fail if you don't do everything correctly, you don't do everything right. So a presumption against, I'm actually... I don't like using it so much and I don't like hearing about it all the time. Not because it's politically uncomfortable for Mm. me, but I feel that we've almost hung our hat on it too much. But you
2: can understand why, can't you? Because there are people in this room this this evening who are trying to plan for the Mm -hmm. future and who hear that the Scottish government's got a presumption against uh, oil and gas. So
7: it's not a presumption against oil and gas, it's a presumption against further exploration for oil and gas. And And you can understand
2: why that evokes such uncertainty and consternation. that's why people are hung up on it
7: but it's not a carte blanche situation as we've heard from from others that there won't be any exploration it will be dependent on the situation at the time and energy security needs in particular so I think we're sort of wide open to looking and not tying ourselves in knots on this Mm -hmm. because we have have to understand that energy security is a very nuanced thing we need to be providing renewables to replace the jobs but also to harness that potential that I talked about but recognising that that potential is incumbent on keeping our oil and gas uh, expertise here as well. Mm. Now, I have to say I would really take issue with some of the, the rhetoric around domestic supply, domestic use, because 80% of our oil produced in the North Sea is exported. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to say gas is a different matter, mm. but it really is one of those things that just gets thrown out there and talked about. It needs to get challenged. We export over 80% of our oil to other countries. Okay. So it's a little bit of a red herring, that.
2: OK. Uh, Jeff, let's bring you in for some uh, analysis uh, on what
4: we're you doing. I'm going to... First of all, i, I was been in the Scottish Government for, for seven years. And uh, I recognise what you say, a lot of oil is exported. Exporting is a good thing for economy. It is one of the credentials that you mark economy success upon. But I want to push just... I know we've only got a certain amount of time, so I want to just push back a little bit on this presumption against. Uh, Gillian, I have the greatest respect for your work. You know, I know your, your work very close. I know you're very passionate about this region. But if you're frustrated at the presumption against and it being hung up on that, then there's an easy solution. Let's get rid of it. There doesn't need to be in that strategy, I'll tell you why. Uh, the First Minister in recent months has travelled to... Uh, um, different parts of the world, and he's met with different leaders. He's met with John Kerry, the climate envoy for the United States, and he's also extolled the virtues of the Norwegian uh, uh, government and their approach to to net zero, and he's absolutely right to do so. The US and Norway are doing great things on net zero. But last month, uh, Norwegian oil and gas companies announced that they were going to be investing £21.85 billion, way more than they anticipated, in oil and gas. Projects. Uh, President Biden, accepting that we needed to reduce our reliance on oil and gas, still announced, his administration, three new projects in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Neither of those countries have a presumption against oil and gas. So I suppose my question to you is, what do you know, what does the Scottish government know that these two governments don't?
7: Well, one thing I would say to you, Jeff, is that it's about climate compatibility checkpoints as well. And I think that any nation that is serious about the goals of it reaching Paris in particular should be working together to have a global standard for climate compatibility checkpoints. Because if you have climate compatibility checkpoints, then everyone knows what they are and everyone signs up to them and there's an agreement. It's actually one of the parts of the agreement that there was in COP28 was about the development of those checkpoints. Now, I think the industry and governments need to do that together because then we know what's acceptable. And what's not acceptable and so i mean presumption against again I, I don't really like the phrase i don't think it really says very much i think it's a little bit of a um you know it's like hang your hat on it i would prefer to talk about countries oil producing countries and oil producing the, the governments of those countries working with the industries within them to say what is acceptable and what is workable on a climate compatibility checkpoint from if when we start to think about how we might award these licences.
3: Andy? I have a lot of sympathy with what you're saying and I have sympathy with the position that you're in, but the problem is that you may not like presumption, I guess, but I think a lot of your colleagues in government do like the words presumption against because you compared it to a driving test which you could pass or fail. I think there are elements of the government, the Green Party primarily, that see it as a driving test that's already rigged, that you're definitely going to fail. That's what they see presumption against as being. So I think a lot of people do like those words because they have a completely different view on it. And I think that's where Jeff used the phrase earlier on, the words matter, and I do think that's where the issues lie. Because I think in your 90 seconds there, pretty much everybody in this room was was probably pretty much in agreement with what you were saying. The difficulty though is, I don't think that is the high-level smoke signal that comes from the Scottish Government, because when you have in government the Scottish Green Party, who A, are anti-capitalists, and B, want to turn the taps off straight away and don't make a secret of it, I don't think you can expect the rest of the world and the industry to just say, oh, well, we'll just ignore what they've said over here and we'll pay attention to what they've said here. I don't think that's how investment works. So the uncertainty is, has to be considered understandable in that context, I think.
7: But there's a very important thing that you're not saying it, and that the energy policy is not in the Butte House Agreement. For the there's reason.
3: a lot that's not in the Butte House Agreement that the Greens still
2: hold a lot of sway over. Do the Greens influence energy policy?
7: Um no,
2: not so a far. Title. I
7: mean I've been I've been I've been energy minister for <coughs> uh, nine months, no, mm-hmm. nearly a year now. And um there has not been anything in terms of the policies that I've been developing in which it hasn't been something that, you know, there have been sort of like red lines or whatever. It's not an agreement. And the you wouldn't let them
2: influence?
7: Well, well, the thing is, all, I've also, I've got obviously, there's a, there's a t- the chain of command here, Sure. right? There's, so I am the energy Patrick and Hart environment is minister. Patrick quite high up it would seem. But, you know, energy and environment minister, um, not just energy. Sure. I've got a cabinet secretary who's in energy in his, his job title and then there's a the first minister and that really the direction in in terms of energy policy comes from the First Minister, Cabinet Secretary and myself.
2: Okay, cool. Uh, Right, let's unpack some of what the others told us as well. Sarah, let's turn to you, uh, because one of the things that you were talking about, uh, which I'm sure was of great interest, was about GB Energy being in Scotland under a potential Labour government. I, I do wonder, though to what extent do you think Labour is having experiencing, even as we speak, almost in real time, something of a PR problem when it comes to its green investment plans. Um, shall we talk about £28 billion um, which has been floating around since 2021 when the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves announced the Green Prosperity Plan at the Labour Conference. And here we are at the beginning of 2024 and no one's quite sure if it remains. Rachel Reeves in the last 24 hours saying the picture's now very different and talking about the fiscal inheritance that's on the way for a potential <laughs> Labour government. This, this is something else that is fueling uncertainty.
5: Yeah. Well, you we have had the economy crashing through a couple of disastrous uh, Tory acts, um, and you've also got what's happening with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, so the economy isn't a much more difficult position but critically we are actually talking about how we would start spending that money mm-hmm. and having GB Energy to work with the sector, to talk about investment. The stuff I get when I meet people is a need for certainty um, a need for support for supply chains. so it's those kind of things. Using government powers, um, using a mix of investment and the government working with the sector. So that is critical and for me there's stuff you could do very fast, um, community energy projects, work with the sector here there'll be projects where a bit more help could get things over the line Mm. critically big things like how do we get to the next stage in terms of carbon capture and storage Having the UK government taking a stronger line on that and working with the sector so I I think it is absolutely critical Um, but you know we've got to be fiscally responsible in the run up to a government and I've got strong memories of Gordon Brown saying the same sorts of things. And once they got the economy stable, money did start to increase. Mm -hmm. So there will be competition for money, but the Green Prosperity Plan, that money is going to be baked in and the planning is going to be baked in from day one.
4: Go on, Jo. do you perhaps recognise that the clarity of messaging from Keir Starmer has been somewhat inconsistent, though, in all of this? So let's go back a few steps. We have this major pledge in 2021 You're quite right to point out some of the external factors that may have impacted that. But we had some messaging around oil and gas, total opposition. Then there's a softening towards it. We'll we'll honour the uh, licences on the point of taking uh, government. We had this £28 billion green prosperity fund. Now, according to the Shadow Chancellor, that might be reneged upon slightly because it's a tough climate. Now, we're here to talk about energy primarily, but one of the things that I think here Starmer's biggest risk is, he doesn't have many, I think he's likely to take it Downing Street later this year, but one of the risks he has is, we know what he's against, we don't really know what he's for, and I think the energy policy of the Labour Party at a UK level is a, you know, a crystallisation of that.
5: Well, I'm just going to have to disagree on that one. Uh, do. I thought you might. I
4: was, at,
5: <laughs> I'm sorry. I was actually at the conference when Rachel Reeve announced the 28 billion first off. I Were you remember, excited? But I was beyond excited. So you're
2: disappointed now and that then, it's gone? No.
5: Then I sat down and thought, how on earth do you spend 28 billion you know, in your first year. You have to gear up to it because I've been in government myself and you have to work projects up and there will be projects that will be ready to spend on day one. Um, There's certainly massive issues at Grangemouth, for example. We've been having discussions in Parliament about how do you actually keep the skilled workers in Grangemouth and give them that chance to stay there and keep that whole community going. Similar conversation you're probably having um, in Aberdeen about how do you keep the jobs that are there while the transition's working. So, no, I'm absolutely... uh, keen that the, the prosperity plan does work. You need investment. Um, and I, I think... Ed Miliband having talked to him and Keir Starmer because we were up before Christmas they met, they met probably quite a few people in the room I was there. and we had a similar conversation, exactly and I, I think it's, it's a no-brainer yeah, things are tougher you've got to be fiscally prudent
4: One but I still cl- think
5: it's exciting, personally
4: it's hugely, it's hugely exciting, I just think the point about consistency of message is really important, particularly in a general election year, but I'm going to give you this fantastic opportunity Sarah. <laughs> Now, uh, I'm reading here <coughs> From your colleague, uh, I got this through the, the letterbox today. Actually, um, this is Aberdeen South. What is it, Jeff? Um, it is a Labour election leaflet oh, for right, Aberdeen South. Right. You could have saved the money probably on my household, but look at this. <laughs> Fast last paragraph. GB Energy headquartered in Scotland. I will fight to ensure that it is based in Aberdeen. Now that's the state-owned energy company that you've pledged. I can promise you headlines national news tomorrow morning if you were to right now guarantee (laughs) that that state energy company will be based in Aberdeen what do you say
5: I'm just going to have to disappoint you Jeff I cannot make that commitment I know I'm going to get booze uh, and I'm going to have to uh, but we're getting lobbied all the time and that's a good thing because people can think how how we could actually have it not just headquartered in Scotland but here but the commitment is to have it headquartered in Scotland and I think we've I'm getting lobbied from across Scotland, actually. There are other places that are also lobbying us, sometimes on a strictly regular basis. So, the thing is, we're having the conversation. Who's
2: got a better pitch, do you think, than at the moment?
5: I am absolutely not going there, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think, think, do you know what it tells us, is that I'm not just getting lobbied by opposition people uh, that don't agree with me, but there is a mood for this. But we've got to do our homework, and it goes back to your point about messaging. You've got to be consistent. So, yes, Green Prosperity Plan, headquarters in Scotland, and all of that. Just wait till the manifesto, and wait till somebody decides there's going to be an election sometime. Hopefully before January. Sarah, just 25. for listeners'
2: benefit, Sarah's looking at Douglas with this. I, I don't she call that. Well, I'm aware of that, but you uh, <laughs> that, sure that can that's what was happening.
3: All of that raises quite an important point, though. I, by the way, Jeff, I can't believe that didn't work. I thought you nailed it. I know, Jeff. it <laughs> well, this didn't work. Your pitch. Getting the headline. Oh yeah. I just, I you uh, tried. I I'm, I'm shocked. Um, it does raise an important point, though, because um. Labour, obviously, is incredibly relevant just now. Uh, And a lot of, not just the oil and gas sector, but a lot of business organisations have a central assumption that not only will Labour win the Westminster election, but that Labour, if trends go the way they are going, has a very good chance of being in power at Holyrood as well. And that is interesting for the energy sector because one of the identified problems which we know about is the working relationship between the Scottish Government and the UK Government in what is a pretty grey area in terms of devolved and reserved responsibilities. And so, actually, Labour have an incredible opportunity to bring all that together and present a very coherent vision of where it's gonna go. My observation would be, you you can listen to Sarah Boyack, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Ed Miliband, you might not always feel like you're getting the same message. And I I do think, I mean, we're still a little bit away from an election, so that sort of thing can be tidied up. But I imagine that this sector, like many other sectors, I think this sector, more than anything else, wants a consistent and certain message, especially from the party, which could be looking at a decade in government north and south of the border. Mm. So it's a great opportunity, but it could also be messed up pretty quickly if you don't get it right. Very briefly, Sarah.
5: That's partly why we're meeting with the business sector all the time. Uh, Anas has put together his business team Mm -hmm. and we're having those kind of discussions, as am I. And it is about getting it right because as an ex-minister, the detail is absolutely critical as well as your top-line messages. You know, I've been a minister and had to make difficult decisions but get things done. Um, And I think that's absolutely critical if you're in government because you can't let people down when your promises have got to all be delivered on time, Mm -hmm. on budget big lesson in there and the last thing I would say about cross-government working I've actually been to two, sorry I I know about two meetings that have been held, one that I went to uh, in the summer which is about pumped hydro storage to persuade the UK government to do more Uh, still more to be done there and I know that Neil Gray wants us to work together on the grid in Scotland and to talk to UK government so there is an appetite for cross-party work Uh, and I think that's good but Mm. yeah just, I would like to see a change so that we could actually put all that into practice. Personally,
2: okay. Uh, stand by. In the next few minutes, we're coming out to get your questions, uh, your experiences, etc. It might be that you have a question for all three people here. It might be that you have want somebody to answer something, have a think about it now and we'll come to you in just a sec. Uh, Douglas, we must consider some of the things you said as well already this evening. Um, actually, just on, on the grid point and on communities, you said bring communities with us uh, as part of your kind of yeah. vision for, um, for energy in Scotland. I noted this from Energy Secretary Neil Gray uh, aforementioned, saying that inconsistencies from the UK government and a lack of investment is holding back progress in the renewable sector and indeed highlighted grid capacity in particular mm. which is something the Conservative government that Westminster could do something about. Yeah, and grid capacity
6: is being being looked at, and uh, obviously there is... What does that mean? What does it mean it's being looked at? Well, there's
2: at? already um,
6: plans for the, the grid connection down the east coast of, of Scotland to be upgraded. That's obviously being... Uh, it's up for consultation just now, and the communities are is anybody ra- can- rightly
2: having their say Yeah, well, is anybody now? being consulted saying, don't do this? They are, is, is this something you need to consult on? Can you not just do it? Well, that is because it's how it impacts people's, people's homes and how, how it impacts their
6: lives. Mm. Yes, the grid needs to be um, upgraded, but there may be ways to try and mitigate certain communities. So it's, it's right that we speak to people to make sure that, you know, as I said, we're all in agreement, the grid needs to be upgraded, but we need to do it in a way that has the, the least impact on, on people.
2: OK, uh, it's really interesting. Jeff? Yeah,
4: yeah very quickly. Um, you, you mentioned certainty. In your remarks, Douglas, that has been replicated by your Scottish Tory leader, Douglas Ross, and indeed, Roussi Sunak, will it give the sector certainty yep. uh, going forward? You took office, your, your party did at Westminster in 2010. Uh, there was five energy ministers between 2010 and 2016. In 2016, the De- Department of Energy was abolished, uh, replaced by the Department for Energy and uh, Business and Industrial Strategy. Since then, We've had six holders of the Secretary of State position. It's 11 different ministers mm-hmm. in 14 years. <laughs> Does like that strike you as certainty? <laughs> <upon laughs> we a good few prime ministers
6: as well, Jeff. <laughs> before, you, before, you get, before you get that
4: one, you get that one in. But the serious point is, that you know, what this crowd, I suspect, yeah. is crying yeah. out for is a consistency yeah. of purpose, of vision, uh, that they can ascribe to. Uh, and we've had 11 ministers in uh, 14 years.
6: Yeah, and, and Jeff, you know... If, if, through government, you know, ministers will always come, ministers will go, but it's about having the policies in place that are consistent. So things like the, the you know, new licenses every year is a consistent approach for moving forward to have more hydrocarbons that we, we need. And, and even though we're issuing new licenses, uh, that is only slowing down the decline. Even without licenses coming in, we're still going to be decreasing by about 7% every year. So this is not about new licenses to, to sell all over the world. And when we talk about exports, it goes to export to be refined, and most of that product will come, come back, to, back to this country. So in terms of export, it's exporting jobs we should be more concerned about. And if we, if we switch off the taps and shut down
2: our oil and gas industry too quickly, that's exactly what will happen. Okay, uh, we're just getting started. Good. Uh, thank you all for that so far. Uh, Jeff and Andy, we're going to deploy you now around the room. And what is a first for the Hollywood Sources podcast? And it's going to go one of two ways, everybody. So, welcome to a real life experiment in real time. Uh, just as Jeff, by the way, the way to do this, raise your hand, catch the eye of Jeff or Andy, flag them down, wave them over. It could be that you've got a question for one person here, for all three people here. We're going to try to cover as broad a range of topics as we can. So, if it feels perhaps like like a question has been asked and answered then there's a chance that your question won't then come on you see what I mean we're going to try and get through as much as we can over the course of the next little while you feeling good you up for it good right are you alright there question. I've got a question already can you just wait two minutes hold that thought this corner over here make sure you raise your hands as well up at the back I can see you just make sure that you're catching the eye of these guys can I just ask the politicians here do you feel like you can work well together The three of you. Well,
7: I I think I probably, in all honesty, and there's nothing uh, against Douglas, but I would think that Sarah and I have probably had more conversations about this than than Douglas I And to be fair to Douglas, you're recently new to the role, and previously Liam Kerr was was in your Mm. role, who I I know well as well. Um, Sarah's right uh, in saying that um, a lot of the things that we're needing to do in the reserve space that Labour and uh, uh, SNP at Hollywood are working together. I also have conversations with Daniel Johnson, who is the economy spokesperson in this in group as well. I think that's, that's where we started off with the mm-hmm. podcast, wasn't it? Talking about yeah, consensus. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I come back to what I said, the, the prize is too great mm-hmm. and they're not doing anything in terms of the actual transition um, and relying on a declining resource is folly. Yeah. And I think we all have to accept that we have to do what is at all possible to keep Aberdeen and Scotland more widely as the energy capital of Europe, because we're going to get a march stolen on as we don't. So we have to yeah. have collaboration and yeah. consensus and certainty and, and policy that sticks, and we it, wor- all work together I, on it.
6: Yeah, I, th- I think there are certain things where, you know we can work together. We, we spoke about uh, you know, a call with Neil Gray, and we're all going to sign a letter saying that you know, the grid capacity needs to be increased. But when you hear things like presumed against any new oil and gas licences, then that's difficult mm. for, for us because, you know, we see that um, it's needed and it's back to the point, while we need oil and gas, it's much better for our economy and much better for our environment,
2: actually, that we produce it here. Yeah. And Sarah, do you feel like there's a collaboration here that's, that's going on?
5: Yeah, I think if you look at our cross-party groups... They are where we are able to have people from different sectors in telling us what it's like um, and having discussions about how you move forward together. We actually had a debate on green jobs last week, which was not all about shouting at each other. Mm. So there's something about strategic investment in infrastructure and supply chains and skills. That was the other thing that came up, and it comes up right across the sector about not just the next generation, but people who are in both oil and gas and renewables making sure that they get the support to get the right skills going forward
2: if you don't want to hear these ads and you're listening on apple podcasts then you can pay $4.99 a month and you'll never hear the ads again just press subscribe at the top
0: of your feed and support the podcast that way hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
2: The Holyrood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with SSE Berwick Bank. We all want a clean energy system that creates jobs, tackles climate change, and supports local communities. But to get there takes more than just ambition. It takes action. In Berwick Bank, Scotland can build the world's largest offshore wind farm. That's right, the biggest anywhere, creating thousands of jobs in the process, SSE as Scotland's clean energy champion can't wait to get started as soon as the project gets the green light from government. Learn more at berwickbank.com.
4: Jeff. who have you got? Yes, we're joined by Emma from the, a fantastic organisation, the Energy Institute Young Professionals Network. Um, and what is this all about if it's not about the future? So, Emma, over to you.
8: Thank you very much. Would you like me to stand up? Yes? Please do. Go with your heart, Emma. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm here this evening as part of the Energy Institute's Young Professional Network. I'm here as an emerging professional, somebody moving into the energy industry with 15 years' experience in higher education. Um, I'm here as somebody who's upskilling themselves um, in energy and somebody who is looking at the future. I have two young children as well, so I'm always thinking about the future. So I'd like to pick up on uh, the fact that you've talked about future opportunities, you've touched on the expertise here and the the workforce, um, and I'd ask all three of you to answer this, please, and bearing in mind what Geoff said about consistency and certainty for the future. So my question is how do you plan to ensure that there is sustainable funding in place that attracts and supports the next generation into the energy industry and those seeking to transition within the energy industry?
2: Nice. Uh, Emma, thank you very, very much. That's great. Now, I'm just going to do the host bit and just say, make your point and make it punchy, alright? Because <laughs> we want to get around as many of these as we possibly can. Sarah Boyak.
5: Yeah, well, my colleagues who represent the northeast talk a lot about folk who in the oil and gas sector having to pay for their own training um, if they want the transition to renewables. So there is something about supporting people through that process, and also making sure we invest in our universities and colleges to make it affordable, particularly for young people, but also for those mid-career to access the courses. And when I was up here, I met last time I met the X academy mm-hmm. and they were really effective about trying to give young people the, the range of skill sets they don't think they've got to emphasise them. So I think it's a mix. It's funding, it's universities and colleges, and it's working with the sector as well to make sure that they are all on board and giving those opportunities both to young people but also to mid-career professionals
2: bit nodding from Emma there. A bit of gentle enthusiasm, I think it's fair to say. Right, go on, Douglas. Uh, yeah, I,
6: Emma, we, we want companies to come and invest into, into Aberdeen and the North East. And that, in turn, will produce, you know, the jobs and opportunities that, that young people need in, in the area. And, um, you know, for that, I think we need to have a, a real positive narrative. The narrative was mentioned already. And, um, you know, so we shouldn't be demonising the oil and gas industry. We need to be talking the area up because you know we've got a lot of potential here but uh, we just need we, we can't be driving investment away
2: okay yeah yeah, a bit of approval as well there from Emma. Go on, Gillian.
7: So Sarah mentioned X Academy. I was going to mention X Academy as a, a really exciting project which takes companies that need young graduates and hot houses them. They effectively go and do an apprenticeship. And I know that we've, we've got two of the best universities in the whole of the UK in, in Aberdeen and at Robert Gordon's yeah. University that have got courses that are tailored for the just transition. We've got actual think tanks within those universities. So I've seen some of the, the, the people who Who staff them uh, here today who are actually looking at how we actually um, uh, transition and and harness that potential. So we're very well placed for their young people, our young people um, who are already, already, you're you're a young person but you're out of of higher education, but also our young people in our schools have a very joined up approach to the people in their uh, guidance in schools and the parents who are the main influence of young people understand the types of jobs that are available and the of skills that are required. And in terms of funding, I think we have to make sure, I don't actually think the government can do this themselves. I think it's actually incumbent to to have more private, public partnerships in doing that. That's why X Academy is good, there's government funding in there, but there's also the commitment from all the businesses that are involved in there to take on these uh, young graduates and give them, uh, you know, hone their skills in so many areas ready for the transition. So it's, it's as, as a partnership approach, I think, it's going to be the way that we actually realise this potential.
6: Mm. but in terms of uni- university funding that's actually been cut so there's to be less places going forward which is a, a, a real shame and it's not going to happen so
7: that's way. why that, that's why I mentioned things are very fiscally difficult not just in Scotland but in the UK and the whole of Europe right now we've just come out of economic shocks and pandemics this is not a Scotland problem this is a, a wider problem there could be a far, Scotland solution ha, how, how far how far does public money go well actually the prize is so great and the prize is great for the, the private sector as well Do we need to have a lot more partnership in there. And actually, I think it's best for people's education as well. We all know the value of apprenticeships, but hot housing in this way, like I mean, we used X's Academy as an example. It happens on the universities as well, where we have this buy-in from the private investors, where they actually put their uh, skills and expertise in, uh, as part of people's education, and they use their resources to get people skilled up as well. I think that's going to have better skilled people than just Publicly funded institutions alone.
2: Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Emma. Great first question. This is how it works. Catch the eye of Jeff or Andy. Andy's got somebody over in this corner, I believe. I
3: have, I have. I, I think tuition fees are a Scottish problem, actually, eh? oh, but yeah. that's a whole other podcast. That's, that's a whole Scottish other podcast. Session. I'm at the Hollywood Sources table, so you know I've got somebody important. Brilliant. good. Um, I've got Ellie. Ellie's an independent contractor working to help scale up startups, and I'm not going to try and say scale up startups again later on tonight. That might not go well. Ellie, over to you.
7: Yeah, it's definitely too many words. So yeah, as Andy said, um, I'm a startup consultant helping startups scale here in Scotland and abroad. And my question to the panel is, from a political perspective, how do you plan to leverage innovation from the Scottish technology scene and from small businesses and startups here to enable the energy transition in a just fashion, Um, and particularly within connecting that innovation to partnerships abroad?
6: Okay. Douglas? Well, before I was uh, an MSP, I was uh, a councillor, the leader of uh, Aberdeen City Council, and uh, we worked well with the UK government and the Scottish government in terms of our city-region deal. And a big thread of that was was about our digital skills, and that's exactly the type of skills we're going to need. as we go forward in our in our energy uh, transition, so the investment is there, and it's on that instance it was both governments working closely together with Opportunity North
2: East as well. Okay, Gillian.
7: So. The Scottish National Investment Bank is actually one of the main vehicles. that's actually got a core kind of mission in on, on terms of reaching net zero and actually really having like very fa- favourable bias almost towards innovation in net zero as well in terms of who they give their, 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 their loans to as well. Also, we've invested the, the 500 million in terms of the, the supply chain as well, which will involve innovation within that supply chain. And we have, of course, given trans, just transition funding as well. Um, this is actually one of the areas in which the UK government and the Scottish government, when they actually decide to work together, can do really good work. We look at the Net Zero Technology Centre. Both governments have put money into that. Mm. We've de- decommissioning de- de- centre in my constituency in Newburgh as well, although I think we should be calling it the repurposing uh, techne- de- centre because I think decommissioning is now going to become repurposing. But that's where we actually work together. The main thing is that we don't have pots of money here, there, and drips and drabs over there. Then we pool our resources and the things that's really going to give us for their buck, and we, um, and of course I can't forget Scottish Enterprise, Highlands and Islands Enterprise, and Sc- uh, South of Scotland Enterprise as well. They are very critical in terms of se- the seed fund and, and hot housing that that talent and innovation. One of the joys about being the energy minister is I like get out the chamber where people are arguing with one another, and I actually go and see it in action. There are innovators all over the place, and they're not just they're not just like for example doing hydrogen in terms of like heat heat for mm. example or f- or fuel. They're doing for things like agriculture as well it is incredible what's out there and actually we've got such a skilled and an expert population in this area that i feel buoyed every time i go out there
6: so julie you mentioned just transition funding but so it's a real shame that that's actually going to be cut for for next year because that can actually make a difference especially to Yeah well we wouldn't be in that
7: position Douglas if we didn't have a, 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 um, a, nearly a 20% cut on our, on our, um, our block grant and, and, I, and, our, and I, I, just, I just think that you know it's, it's okay to talk about the, 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 the budget you know it's okay mm-hmm. to talk about the budget it's yes. a tough tough budget but the very fact remains is the Scottish government has to work within yeah. what is in their block grant we cannot mm-hmm. borrow money um, yeah, We're channeling more than money to the extent the UK government can, you know. and we. Let, let, let me make my point. Mm-hmm. I find it incredible that the Conservatives in the Scottish Parliament are all of a sudden standing up and howling about things being cut for public services, for example, when they are the main reason why we're having to make those cuts. So I'm sorry that we've had to withdraw funding from certain projects. Listen, no one's more sorry than, than I am in terms of things that have come out of, of my budget. But we have to claw that back and we have to make sure that our agencies and the, the technology centres keep their, 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 their focus on the things that are going to work. And we all have to work together to make sure that we don't have to make the terrible funding decisions that we have this and a lot of this was a lot a lot of the blame for this comes on the fact that the uk government are not fully behind what the missions are for the scottish government in terms of just transition and in renewable uh, uh, energy resources as well
6: (laughs) Gillian, you, you say the budget's gone down, but according to the Scottish Fiscal Commission, got got the figures here, 0.9% rise after accounting for inflation. It's actually the political choices that you're making is why there's not enough money yeah. and why me, things like the Just Transition Fund me, is being pulled. As,
7: as somebody who sat in Cabinet, these are not political decisions. This yeah, is fiscal Scottish Fiscal decisions. Commission that's saying
6: it. Okay. It's not our figures. OK. Uh,
2: Sarah, your thoughts?
7: Yeah,
5: Audit Scotland can be pretty c- critical of the Scottish Government wasting money and, and we're not going to go at the ferries tonight. Uh, although... Shipping is a major issue for offshore production, whether it's oil and gas or renewables. Let we come back to that. I think, going back to the initial question, yeah. I think it's really a question of actually having targeted support. Um, and one of the things that hasn't been mentioned yet is thinking about public procurement, how they work with smaller companies. Things are quite often centralised, and I think there's scope for doing things more at a local level and networking in with um, local business organisations. And there's, there's things like... Um, you know, retrofitting homes, part of it didn't work because a lot of small companies couldn't meet the standards they're being required to mm. meet. So there's something about easier access to training, easier access to support, um, and using our enterprise
2: networks better. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ellie, for your question there. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, they're not answering my question, it's potentially because you've not asked it, all right? Don't <laughs> let the opportunity go by. Jeff, who have you got? Yeah, David,
4: we were joined by David, uh, Hello, from David plus zero um who's got a question quite aligned to what we've heard before but with a little slant on indigenous Scottish manufacturing companies. David.
1: Thanks very much. Panel, um, we heard earlier that um, Scotland has undoubtedly a sort of world-leading wind industry. Um, Our Cabinet Secretary recently informed the um, Scottish Affairs Committee that we produce 39% of the... or have 39% of the UK's capacity, 5% of Europe's, and 1% of the world. So that's clearly an area where we punch way above our weight and can legitimately claim to be a sort of global leader... I work in a sector in a new emerging clean energy area where it's recognised that Scotland also has the potential to be a global leader, which is the production of um, blue and green hydrogen and its application to decarbonise our economies. I'm concerned that... um, all of the equipment that will grow that industry and um, provide the application technologies is going to come from Europe, the US, China, where Mm. their governments are making huge strategic um, investments to support the development of their industries to bring that technology to the fore. So I just wanted to ask you, do you think it matters um, that we... That, um, that we won't have a manufacturing industry. And if you do think it matters, what are you doing either at the moment in government or would you do in government um, to try and address that?
2: Okay, really interesting. So uh, Gillian, first of all, does it matter not to have a manufacturing side of things, as David Well, so of,
7: Yeah, of course, of course, it matters. So what are you doing yeah, about and, it? And ideally, so when you look at this situation, we're actually um, trying to attract companies actually like, come to Scotland and actually manufacture. Look at the Suotomo um, uh, decision that was made, which is actually going to mean we've got a cabling factory as well. But since we're talking, since we've mentioned about blue and green hydrogen, we're talking about green hydrogen, one of the most important things I think we can do in terms of the innovation around is actually the transportation of green hydrogen because we know. The <laughs> on a number of things. We know that Scotland for example is going to be generating 28 gigawatts that is not all going to be able to go into the grid so therefore what are we going to do with it? We're going to make hydrogen but also we want to use that domestically but also there's a huge demand for it in in Europe. I've been over in uh, northern Europe in the tail end of last year speaking to the major ports like ports of Zeebrugge for example um, and talking talking with this German lender in particular about how we're actually going to get that in. Again this, uh, get, get that into to, to Europe where it's actually been used for the uh, decarbonisation of in, um, industry there. They are desperate for our uh, potential hydrogen have a route into in, into their uh, market there. So we have got quite a number of innovators within Scotland that are actually looking how to liquefy hydrogen because one of the things that, that's starting to emerge in Europe is that there's a bit of nervousness about ammonia, particularly when the ports are actually very close to, um, you know, uh, populations, for example. So I think that's one area in which we actually got a real, I know of some quite a few companies that are absolutely on this and we're actually talking to the, one of the German lender was actually Bavaria about piloting some transportation of green hydrogen just to see how we can actually get it to Bavaria working with those companies. So things are happening all the time. Mm. Would it be better to have lots of manufacturing here? Yes I and mean, we were going to have like Vestas are, are going to come to the port of Leith You've got Suotomo. it's all really starting to happen very very quickly
4: if I may just come in on the back of this um, uh, Gillian and for all the panellists though one of the things we're picking up from the audience tonight and indeed conversations with industry is that we don't have that guarantee of an order book whether it be offshore wind and I'm sure will happen with hydrogen as well and we'll both the UK and Scottish governments look at emulating the UK export guarantee where they can give some sort of loan guarantee to some of the orders, whether it's cable manufacturing, moorings, anchorings, to give that confidence for inward investment because that inward investment is lacking just now in terms of its confidence to go forward, manufacture and say, hopefully everything will be okay. So will you give that guarantee? And if the best things happen, and we are sure they will, the money won't be required. So I think that's both incumbent on both the UK government and indeed, the Scottish government.
7: But that's happening all the time. We're actually out, out there with Scottish Enterprise, in particular, um, and, and making those deals. Whether those guarantees are happening, um, I, I would have to get back to you, Jeff. You know, I think you're asking me to sort of like be, be a cabinet secretary here at the moment. But I mean, which is very nice of you. Thank you very much. But I think it's it, it's actually the, the the SDI is working around the globe, making all those connections and trying to attract more companies into Scotland. But I'll tell you one thing, Jeff. In all those t- times that I've been out and about as energy minister and I've been in Denmark and I've been in Belgium and and I've been speaking to the the German lender in particular they know Scotland is where it's at. I was in Ireland I was in Donegal and they were talking about um, their their wind capacity which I think is something like 2 gigawatts if if at all looking at what we've got here, they look to Scotland and as, as others see you they see this is the place where it has got the most potential. So I actually don't think it's going to be too much of a problem attracting. We're already attracting an awful lot of business coming in from outside the UK.
2: OK, a quick couple of thoughts from you guys so we can work our way around the room.
6: Yeah, yeah come, so Jeff, you mentioned, you know, the, the investment we need to come in. I think what would help on that... Is actually the consenting process to be, be sped up. It takes, and I think we we'll probably all agree on this as well, it yeah, takes I far agree. too long yeah. for yeah. Um, agreements, irreducibly, um, for, for things Absolutely. to be. There's um, consensus to for be you. Yeah. So I think we we'll speed that up, then we'll get the investment coming in. Yeah, yeah. we're
7: working on it. We're actually, we, we have to up the capacity in the consenting unit quite okay. massively, but we know what's coming down the line, so that is actively happening now. But it comes back to the, skill, the skills point. We need more people trained in the, all the various um, expertise around mm-hmm. consenting, environment, environmental impact assessments, we need to ramp up and make, make it clear to pe- young people in particular that there's lots of jobs in this area because we're going to need this. Sc-
6: Gillian, you've been in that. power for 17 years. Surely this should have been thought of a long time ago and should have been, been ready for this point.
7: What, well, Scott wind was only announced a couple of years ago, Douglas. But Alex Salmond said we well, were going to be the
6: Saudi Arabia wind many years ago, well, so surely that should have all been in place. Maybe yeah.
2: that was Jeff's line. Yeah, <laughs> that's
7: that, that. <laughs> a very good line. It's a very good
2: line. <laughs> Jeff. Uh, Sarah, if I can keep it brief with you. Yeah, we need a bit
5: better heavy all lifting. In, we need better li- heavy lifting in government in terms of the policy development. You need a geographical approach to this. We're going to have so much potential capacity electricity coming off the North Sea. Um And until that grid is all linked up, there's opportunities that we could start to develop now. And I think delay to the green industrial strategy was a big shame. Um, And I think we do need to have that much more joined up approach. We're not getting that. And that's partly what we think GB Energy would do. It would be the state actually coming in and pulling all the players together, whether it's um, opportunities with... um, developing green hydrogen, thinking about the geography there, thinking about how you use green hydrogen, all of that. I can't see David because I think he's behind the pillar. Yes. But very keen to actually see that because it's a massive missed opportunity at the moment, can, can I, particularly can I ask with green capacity. That Please do. That. And I'll make the point about uh, Scott That money did not go into the investment that we'd hoped for. It went just back into the budget. And that's because it wasn't just cuts in the budget. It was because bad spending in the budget. Can,
7: can I ask something was said? this is a genuinely question. Um, Sarah's been talking about GB energy and her colleagues talk about GB energy. I would actually like to know what it is. What's it what's it going to do? What is it? I think the public have an idea. You talk yeah. about a GB, it's a publicly owned yeah. energy company. What difference is that actually going to to make to um, your ordinary person um, that's fuel poor, for example? I mean, I I genuinely would want to know what GB Energy is going to be and how you're going to do it. Is it a down down people's bills.
5: It's about bringing down people's bills. So one of the things we're massively under utilising is the opportunity of community energy. It's not happening to the extent we could do in terms of solar on our roofs. Solar farms, community-owned renewable projects. But is it going projects. to be selling electricity to consumers? It's, it's going to be bringing the industry together and actually taking a lead. Now, it's it's not going to nationalise the whole of electricity. Um, But look at some of the experiences on Europe. The European companies that come here to Scotland, make good profits and send it home. It's about not having um, all of our energy split up into different packages. It's about joining it up and making sure you've got clear leadership and focusing on bringing people's bills down, getting those supply chains sorted and having an approach that brings governments together. And you're not just talking UK and Scottish government. Local government is critical here as well um, in terms of the on the ground and making things happening, getting sites available. I'm an ex-town planner, so... the cuts it's, it's still encompassing the government quite a not lot. Helped, I'm an saying. energy
7: minister and I Absolutely. find that confusing.
6: Yeah. Sounds like a return to the
5: 70s to me. But no, well, it's about going into the future, actually. Look at Joe, Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. That's about using the public sector to actually support industry, support business, and, and give that clarity and strategic Would, would it be like an energy department?
2: Is that, is, because it sounds like it encompasses a lot of what a sort of government department would do.
5: Yeah, but specifically with that one job, not just being a part of government, it would be focusing exclusively on energy, and yeah. it lets you do the green prosperity plan and joined-up approach from local, national, at both UK and Scottish government, and give the give a joined-up approach we simply haven't got yet okay. because you've had too many years of mismanagement of the SNP, but also an approach to just let somebody else do it with the Tory government. So you
2: so it all? Well, like I
5: just said we weren't nationalising like it all. OK, no, 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 right, conversa-
2: the conversation continues. <sighs> uh, if you want your question answered, get your hand up. Andy McKeever... Hello. Hi. Hi. You uh, all right? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks,
3: yes. Who have you uh, found? I have Rod Hutchison from uh, Aberdeen Constantine and Aberdeen Renewable
9: Energy. Hello, Rod. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Uh, so, so really, principally for Gillian, um, I mean, I, I'm very much a proponent of renewables, but totally understand the practicality and the requirement for hydrocarbons going forward. So it feels like very much a collaborative thing rather than polarisation. Uh, and so to me, how do you reconcile that with presumption against, with just transition? And one of the roles that I have with AREG is facilitating uh, opportunities for the supply chain. And it sends out a very negative messaging when you say presumption against oil and gas, when it's clearly going to be needed for quite some time. But obviously everyone's buying in to renewables because yeah. that's the way forward. So You will, you yeah. will
7: get no disagreement from me that, it, that the oil and gas is going to be ne- needed for quite some time. My issue is that we talk about this in the wrong way. We'd, it's not presumption against oil and gas, first of all. Because there's oil and gas licenses already out there. There's still a lot of oil and gas that's actually potentially um, has already been found. It's about the future exploration of oil and gas, first of all. But what I also want to say is I think we talk about things almost back to front. What we need to be doing is reducing the need for the burning of hydrocarbons. Now, that is in the gift of all of us and that is in the gift of both governments and that's in the gift of... So it's the burnings, the combustion of them. We're still going to need oil and gas for a long, long time, but we're actually, well, one of the, the reasons why Scotland is so uh, fuel poor is because we don't have the right kind of heating in place for our rural communities as well. So we need to be looking at uh, sustainable heating that's going to be cheaper to run and not subject to the terrible economic shocks that we've seen around the gas market. Look at the situation, what's, what's happened as a result of, of Ukraine and the spike in, in uh, fuel costs. That's been something that's been completely and utterly out with the control of both UK, government and Scottish government. It's been a global economic shock. If we make it that we are less reliant on the burning of fossil fuels for absolutely everything, for transport, for heat, then we are going to have a situation where people are not going to be subject to those geopolitical and economic shocks. So that's what we effectively are are doing. We're actually making sure that we recognise that oil and gas has got a part to play in the Scottish energy mix, but we are preparing, we're future-proofing our energy supply uh, with renewables. And that's why, and, and I have to say, it's not been mentioned, Scottish Government does not have the levers in this regard of licensing, right? But I understand that people want to know our view. It's up to the UK Government as to what they do with licensing. But we have set our stall out, uh, we or are, are put all our energy, pardon the pun, into the renewables future of Scotland with the help of the oil and gas companies that have served us so well, particularly their workforce, over the last five decades. Because we need to make sure they've got jobs in the future and we need to make sure that we stay the energy capital of
2: Europe. Can I just ask then, so the presumption against stuff, which... we should all obsessed with. Well, yeah, we well, can understand important. why. You can yeah. understand why. Let's not dismiss that. So it's in the draft strategy. Is it going to be in the actual strategy? If you well, don't like it this much and everyone's would, getting hung up on it unnecessarily. I would,
7: if I, if I um, said what's going to happen in a strategy that's not been published yet. Oh, but you can I'd stop breaking, us all being hung up on it. I would break the ministerial code, mm. so I'm not going to do that.
2: Okay, would you like it to be in the final strategy? <laughs> <laughs> would you? Why are you not answering that?
7: I'm not, and, these I'm not 300 answering that because people would love an answer. I'm not answering that because I don't want to break any kind of confidence in conversations that I've been having on this very matter.
4: Okay. Jeff Aberdeen. Fascinating. I'm not going to... I really want to, but I'm not going to. This is about the people's... Event. But um, let's crack on, Calum. Let's get some quicker answers because there's a lot of people Yeah, we've got loads, loads to get through. Douglas Lumsden's getting it far too easy tonight oh, and I'm about, I'm about to change that just ah. now. We've got a great question from Gillian. Hi.
8: Hi. Um we haven't talked about the energy profit levy, which I think is an important topic to touch upon. Um, I think you've all said that hydrocarbons is important. It's, it's here to stay. We, we need it for the future. It's part of the energy mix. So what are you doing about the energy profit levy? Because clearly that is driving out investment here um, in the UK. And unfortunately, it's having a real knock-on impact to the industry. I can talk about Apache. Um, You know, we've stopped drilling in in the North Sea, we've downmanned our drilling rigs, we've reduced our our workforce, unfortunately, and a lot of that is because of the impact of the energy profit levy. So mm. I'd really like yeah. to hear what you're doing there. Yeah.
2: So Gillian, sorry, just for clarity, you're from Apache? I am. Yeah. yeah. So Douglas, yeah, what were no, you on this. Gillian, because, that's what, a, that's about 130 jobs? If I'm If mm-hmm. I'm right, have had to go as a result of the energy profit yep. levy.
6: Is that's
8: it? not quite right, but it's it's a significant
2: yeah, number. Yeah.
6: Fine. Uh, no, Gillian, as a, as a northeast uh, MSP, I'm, I'm not going to stand up for the, the UK government here. I, you know, I'm completely against the um, the, the EPL, but. Um, you know, I, I can understand why it was taken in at the time. You know, energy bills were were, um, were, were going through the roof, and um, you know there was money required to offset some of that that huge increases. Um, I did. I was listening to a, another podcast uh, yesterday. I think Douglas Ross was uh, was on the the chamber podcast, mm. and he was asked about this. And I know he's making representations uh, to the. To the, the, the Treasury to try and have this um, lifted and we'd obviously like to see it go as, as soon as it's possible but in terms of you know who would you trust actually to get rid of that EPL quicker is it a conservative government who brought in, it in who brought it in <laughs> but what was at Callum what was, what was what was Labour's stance on it they wanted to go
8: but that's harder good, that's and stronger, good, that's and I think point. they would keep
6: it in for a lot longer than we would over Australia. I
8: would like to hear from Labour, to be honest, because obviously yeah. a general elections coming up, and that's where a lot of the uncertainty lies for for investment in the UK. Sarah? yeah, I think the the principle at
5: the time was because it was unexpected. Profit levels at a point when the cost of gas for householders was absolutely rocketed, um, and we're up to something like 36% of Scottish households are living in fuel poverty now, and that is just unheard of. So it's about getting the balance right there. And I totally get the point about people moving out of the country, but we were at a point of crisis where people, and actually people are still turning off their heat. You've got families where there's people who've got disability who cannot now afford to have heating on in the house or use their electricity and that is a major social problem that we've also got to address and going forward it's going to have to be thinking through what the choices are in terms of that finance and to be honest nobody's mentioned making our buildings more efficient so that we don't have to use as much energy so, so,
2: and pay sorry, as much sorry, energy Sarah, in the we're talking place. about the energy profits levy right now yes so, no, I, so I did
5: that yes. no.
2: have, are, are you satisfied well, no. are you satisfied no I, I didn't actually hear didn't didn't he hear the energy profits levy so would it, what, what level would it be at under a labour government well what i was what
5: i was saying there was that we supported the principle of why it was brought in and because of the crisis that the country faced so that's the past. and that it's not been resolved yet has it we're still so at the, a so point it should where stay. well even this year there are people's bills who are just
2: going to be totally unpayable so so what's the benchmark because every year there's some people that can't pay their bills so what's the percentage of Yeah, but we were going to get below. rid of that
5: entirely, and now we're up at 36%. So what so percentages
2: need to be at for the EPL to go?
5: I think it's a question of the government working with industry and also getting those bills down. It's a combination.
2: OK, but I, I don't understand what that means for the, for, the, for the future of companies that are enduring it right now. And, yep. and also this idea that there's some sort of prioritisation of keeping the levy while watching people lose their jobs. I'm trying no, to sort No, that's
5: why I'm saying you did a joined up approach and at people getting round the table and having that conversation.
2: Mm. Do you, yeah. s- you sense the frustration when, when you sort of give an answer like that and there's a kind of lack oh, of I clarity? S- I can absolutely see the
5: expression at that table. Yes, so I'm taking that. And one of the good things about something like this is you're here to listen. Mm-hmm. This is not just us here to lecture people. Um, the things that I'll take back that I found the difficult questions, absolutely. Okay,
2: we can be try. Uh, right, let's go to... Where's Andy? I've lost him. He's up at the I'll, back of the room. way up at the back Let's here. whiz through a few more questions. Yeah, well, I'm
3: going to do that for you because I've got
2: a double header here. Love that.
3: Similar, but linked. Linked, but slightly different questions. Uh, I've got Steve Johnson from Paratus Commercial Services and I've got Jenny
9: Stanning from Offshore Energy UK. So, we're going to do, do it at the same time. Cool. Thank you. Hi, hi panel. Um, the... If we assume that energy companies are their own tier two supplier, like every supplier's got energy costs and fuel costs, and when costs start to go up... Um, so I, I, I was a mechanic in the 80s when diesel cars were being promoted as replacing petrol because they were much cleaner and much nicer for the environment. So the taxes were reduced on diesel at the pumps. Everyone then bought diesel cars. All of a sudden, diesel's now more expensive and, and, and not good for everybody. Mm. So if we get to a stage where the oil and gas companies who are currently paying significant money into the government coffers, regardless of which government... If we then eliminate all of that and we are all dependent on renewable energy that is being subsidised, so the supply chain is being encouraged to get on that bus, what happens when oil and gas disappears or significantly reduces? The government doesn't get those taxes that it's getting through the profit levy, etc. Are we as the consumers, as businesses as well as consumers going to have to pay more in energy costs when the supply and demand shift takes place. So, Because the government isn't going to make money unless those renewables companies make significant profits, Mm -hmm. which we will pay for. Are we not going to replace the current problem we've got with oil and gas with the renewables market structure? Because the supply chain doesn't know what bus to get on right now, and there are contracts that they're signing into to do the right thing, but it's not necessarily the right thing for for the economy.
2: Okay. Thank you for your question and here's the second one.
3: Hello panel. It's loosely linked Andy. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a world-class supply chain that we have here in the energy industry in Scotland and definitely near... Uh, sorry, I'm going to stand up so you can see me. Thank in you. Scotland and definitely in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire, right? But a lot of that supply chain is dependent on oil and gas, although it is an energy supply chain. And it will be dependent on oil and gas revenue to fund its transition and its evolution into the new energies that we all want and we all need. So my question to the panel is, do you actively want that activity in oil and gas? And what is your political party going to do about improving the investor environment that we need to secure that activity and the long-term
5: future of that all-energy supply chain?
2: Okay. Yeah. Sarah Boyak.
5: Well, I think part of it is working with the sector now and the thing we've talked about earlier in terms of oil and gas being with us for decades to come, it is about working on things like infrastructure. One of the things that people have talked to me about is shipping in terms of access to infrastructure. Um, that's a big issue. People would like a bit more joined-up approach on that if they were going to decarbonise that element of the process. Um, and I think it is a question of you know, being able to sit around the table and have that kind of conversation. And that is partly why... We did want uh, the principle of GB Energy to enable that kind of conversation to take place. I, don't, I think it's really sent out to the market at the moment. There's not that government engagement. And I think that's critical because there is investment and we need to make sure it's going to be effective in terms of supply chains.
6: Douglas? Uh, yeah, no. Um, so, Jenny, as I said in the introduction, you know, the oil and gas companies are vital for our energy transition. We need their... Investment, and we need their their skills to, to move forward, and that's why it's so disappointing for me that in terms of well, I'm having to go to other people now. Labour, you know, they they said they're going to stop issuing any licences. We've already heard about the um, presumed presum, presumption against any um, new new developments. CBC on whether that that'll will be the really, strategy. Well, maybe, but that really does affect confidence and the investment in the northeast. So we've got to move away from that language. We need to encourage people to invest in the northeast because what I see in terms of house prices falling and things is really heartbreaking. Mm. And we need to we need to go on a different path. Gillian.
7: So I'm not sure that we can provide any more certainty about the direction of travel for Scotland's energy mix and future than 28 gigawatts worth of licences and indeed uh, INTOG, which is helping oil and gas platforms to decarbonise their... Reduce the emissions in their production. We wouldn't be making those decisions around INTOG if we didn't see a future for oil and gas. That is going to be reducing the emissions from production of oil and gas. We wouldn't do that if... You know, you would believe Douglas Limson characterising that as turning off the taps, which is a ridiculous Presumed against, that's right. what you've said. So, I think both those things are showing that we're serious about an energy mix in the future. We're serious about reducing the emissions that are uh, already, um, that, that, uh, that are an unacceptable level from production, which will allow oil and gas companies to continue to produce and presumably it would be um, climate compatible in part of that climate compatibility uh, argument if they were able to do so with our help and with the help of floating offshore wind to do that. Um, I also just want to mention in terms of of the the previous question as well um, that the Scottish Government does not get any revenue from oil and and gas Um, and one of the, the, the ways in which we've been able to actually do more in the energy space is that because we've now got the devolution of the Crown Estate, which means that we have got Crown Estate Scotland, which means we can have these licences for, for offshore wind. So we will uh, we'll ha- be having revenues. It's very important that we use that for the people of Scotland as, as much as possible. Because one of the things about oil and gas revenues, billions of pounds going into the Exchequer for decades from Aberdeen, <laughs> particularly, and Aberdeen in the North, North Sea, is that Scotland really didn't see much of it. And you just have to look at the State of Union Street to see that that's the case.
6: Okay. Julian, can I ask, Very quickly, of, if you would, Douglas. In terms of the £8 billion investment into Rosebank, do you support that?
7: Of, of Rosebank? Yes. I've not made that decision. Do you support is, it? You were talking, talking about a you, reserved policy. You you're asking it? a minister in a devolved government
2: about reserved policy. Do you welcome the investment?
7: I didn't have any part in that decision.
2: So, sorry, for clarity, you could still welcome it. <laughs> <laughs>
7: And, and, and you, you, can, you can look at me with those puppy dog eyes for as oh. long as you want, Callum. You've asked me two questions of which you know it's impossible for me to give an, an answer Why, in a be honest. space. To okay,
2: well, be honest. And with thanks for the compliment. Uh, Jeff. <laughs>
4: <laughs> One final question, which might help you, Gillian. This is from Alex, our sponsor. Um, and we need to give him a question because he's paying for our all expenses trip <laughs> <laughs> to Las Vegas next month but I think you might like this this is more getting rid of the presumption
10: against than a presumption in favour Thank you Geoff um, and yeah, look forward to Las Vegas if, if, as long as you're paying um, yeah, So Alex Meredith from SSE Renewables I'm the project director for Berwick Bank uh, which is a project that's currently under consideration uh, for consent um, We have heard a lot about the presumption against I do want to talk about what we're for, and I think there is consensus that we're for offshore wind, which is really positive. But I think we need to understand what are the practical steps we're going to take, or what the the political parties will take, to ensure that presumption is followed through. So is there a presumption, or could there be a presumption in favour of wind projects going forward? We talk about 28 gigawatts of, of capacity, but all those projects need consent, and they will all be subject to a very risky consent process, Now, we think at Berwick Bank we can unlock nearly 5,000 jobs in Scotland. We have the supply chain ready to invest in Scotland to deliver those jobs, but we're still at the mercy of a planning system which is still very, very difficult, slow, challenging. Mm. What are are the panel going to do to speed up that, that planning process, to make it more certain, to create a presumption in favour that supports the sort of investments that we know we can unlock with Berwick Bank? Gillian?
7: I'm not going to mention ballot Bank specifically. I don't think you would expect me to, given that it's still under consideration, and um, I think you understand that. Um, but in terms of... I think actually this... I mean, I I don't like the presumption language I've said that, right? Presumption for or against is is if it's still a license application. What we have to do, and one of the things that I've been talking uh, to to my officials and and various people and various working groups that I'm chairing as well, like SoEC, is around how we are not duplicating effort. We're duplicating the effort in terms of environmental impact assessments, the rafts. I mean, if it was all on paper, it would be like trucks backing into the consent units units and and unloading lots of paper. And that's been done by every single license application. It is meaning that we've got log jams in terms of the consenting. Um, We need more people that are actually trained up to do all the the analysis around the the, the applications. And also the, the analysis of those applications when they come in. We know what's coming down the track. We've already got, obviously, we've got a commitment to double onshore wind. We've got Scotland, we've got Intog, and we've got the things that you mentioned, the projects that are in the pipeline right now. So we are actively recruiting and increasing the capacity at government. It's part of, um, I suppose, arrangements that we've got with the industry. I'll talk about the onshore wind Mm -hmm. sector deal. We actually made a commitment with government. They said that they would do certain things for for the people of Scotland, like community benefits. We said that we would slim down and streamline the consenting process we have to do that because everything is riding on that we don't want to be the blocker to getting to net zero first of all Mm. and having energy security in scotland
6: Douglas. Yeah, no, I think um, we're actually going to agree on something, Gillian. Get, get so uh, in, in terms of uh, the consent, and it, it does need to change. Uh, as Gillian said there's far too many um, agencies involved just now. We're just trying to write them all down Nature, Scott, Crown Estates, local authorities, each, but they've got their own planning departments, Marine Lab, RSPB, um, you know, ministers as well. So if there was maybe one organisation <laughs> that was overseeing it, then it would be, that would hopefully streamline the process and make things a lot, lot faster.
5: Yeah, I mean, we've had 20-odd years of wind developments now, so we know what the lessons are in terms of biodiversity, impact on bird life. We need to join that up, Mm. Um, and we need faster consenting, and it's not just offshore wind. It's also uh, turbines. um, It's flotation. it's All of that needs to be um, changed. I mean, I met a company who said that they were... Um, if they wanted to develop in Canada, it would take them two years from start to finish, from the consenting process. In Scotland, it was over seven. So we need to fix that. And part of it is about having the right staff, but also having a process that's going to work Mm. and not be completely repetitive. Can I add
7: one thing as well? Very, very briefly. It's about the public conversation that we have about the infrastructure that's required to get all this to the grid and to market as well. Because things that can make that whole process a lot longer is when things go Mm. to judicial review or there's there's community campaigns against things. And I think that we really have to have that conversation with people about how are we future-proofing energy supply for the electricity and the fuel that you need. There's going to have to be infrastructure in place. Onshore wind, for example, um, va- various um, uh, transmission infrastructure as well. It's very tricky. It's a difficult conversation to have, but I think it's incumbent on in all of us to have it. Yeah.
2: Communities need to be involved as well. Absolutely. Yeah. From the start. Some consensus and agreement on which to end. Gillian Martin, Douglas Lumson, and Sarah Boyack. Thank you all very, very much. Ugh. <laughs>
0: Ugh.
2: They're even going for a handshake. <laughs> Look at what we can achieve in Hollywood Sources together. Uh, thank you all for being here this evening. We really, really appreciate it more than we could ever say. Thank you to those who have asked questions. One thing that I'm really concerned about when we do these is that the conversation doesn't stop now. You can email us, hello at hollywoodsources.com to get in touch, and we will pick up on your comments, your critiques perhaps, your praise, your criticism, whatever, of what you've heard this evening on future episodes. So email us anytime. we'd love that. This is an election year. Here, don't forget. And so it's really important that we keep these conversations going. Uh, cannot thank you enough for being here this evening. Thank you for sharing your expertise. I'm delighted to say the bar will reopen presently. Uh, so, so, you know, run, basically. Thank you very much. Thank you for being part of the podcast. You're brilliant. We really appreciate it. <clears throat>